Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. It is so good to be in person with you all here. Um, For those of you who are here in the sanctuary, those of you in the greenhouse, those of you online, um, it's a privilege to be with you on this second Sunday of the Easter season. Um, That's right. Easter is not just a day. Easter is a season. Um, We celebrate and we remember and reflect upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus for a whole season. So that's what we're doing today. Um, And during this particular Easter season at Redeemer, we're going to be looking through the book of Acts um, with the sermon series on resurrected mission. And I know when I was younger, I always had the question, well, Jesus was raised from the dead, but then what, right? Like what happened next? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wonder what happened next. We're actually told there's a whole book about what happened in the early days after Christ's resurrection. And that is the book of Acts. Um, And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that is one of the earliest sermons ever preached on the resurrection. But I think to make sense of this sermon in, in Acts that Peter preaches, uh, it's important to have a little bit of context first. So Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, also written by Luke. And it's, it's the sequel. And it picks up right where the Gospel of Luke leaves off, with Jesus' disciples encountering the risen Lord. I mean, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read that the resurrected Jesus taught them for 40 days about his resurrection. And then he ascended back into heaven and disappeared from their sight. And you may think, like, what a waste. 40 days of, like, Bible study from the resurrected Jesus. Man, too bad that's all lost to history. Well, it's actually not lost. We do know what Jesus taught because a lot of the rest of the book of Acts is filled with sermons that his disciples taught about the resurrection. Where did they get these ideas about his resurrection? They got them from Jesus. And so as we look at Peter's sermon this morning, we're essentially getting secondhand what Jesus thought about his own resurrection. That's kind of amazing, I think. So continuing forward with the story, after Jesus teaches his disciples and returns to heaven, His disciples wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the risen Christ, falls upon them on the day of Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating and talking about in a few weeks. And they are empowered by God's Spirit to become witnesses to Jesus' resurrection through their life and through their words. Now, it's important to remember, I think, that all of these early Christians— including Jesus's main disciples, they were all Jews, and they still saw themselves as Jews, even after they believed in Jesus as their Messiah. They still worshiped in the Jerusalem temple. They still went to synagogue and all the rest of those things. They were thoroughly Jewish. And so, um, you know, in these early days, at the beginning of Acts 3, one of these days, Peter and John, they're on their way to worship at the Jerusalem temple. And they encounter a man there who had been unable to walk since birth, begging for money by the temple gates. And to make a, well, kind of mid-length story short, I'll just read what happens. Um, Chapter three, starting at verse six, Peter says to this man, 
Silver or gold, I do not have to give to you, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them and went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Understandably, this creates quite a scene. In verse 11, it says that while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colony. And so right in front of these huge temple gates with a captive audience in front of him, Peter begins to preach. And that's where our text from today picks up, starting in verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why does this surprise you? You know, it seems like a a silly question, but it's actually important. Why were these people surprised by what had happened? You know, we might think that people back then were super gullible or thought that supernatural things happened all the time because they didn't have our advanced scientific knowledge that we have today. But that isn't true, right? They knew as well as we do that a sudden reversal of lifelong paralysis does not normally happen. Same happened, same goes for the resurrection. You know, people back then didn't believe that walking out of the tomb was a viable option for dead people. They had their entire life experience and their parents' life experience and their grandparents' life experience to tell them that when someone dies, they stay dead. They weren't stupid. And so, of course, they were surprised by this healing because it didn't fit neatly in the story that they thought they were living. It didn't match their assumptions about the world. And Peter calls attention to that. He names their surprise to show that the story that they had assumed about themselves and about the world was bursting apart at the seams like an old brittle wineskin filled with new wine. And so, Peter gives them a new story. And not in the sense of a legend or a tall tale. See, I think the truest way to speak about who we are and about what our life is, is through story. It's the deepest way to tell the truth. And so with the rest of our time together, we're going to look at this new story that Peter tells. And we'll see that it's a story where the main character is not us. It's God. And it's a story that transforms our past and our future and our present. So let's look at it together. The first thing that we learn from Peter is that the story that defines us is actually not a story about us at all. It's a story about God. You're not the main character. I hate to break it to you. God is. See, the crowd immediately assumed that Peter and John must be incredibly powerful and and holy people to perform a miracle like this. But Peter asks them in verse 12, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? And then in verse 16, he says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. 
Peter is quick to make it ultra clear that his own power or piety or prestige had nothing to do with this man's healing. It did not come from him. It came from the power of Jesus' name accessed by faith. See, in biblical times and honestly still today, someone's name carries the weight of their identity and their power and their authority. And this is kind of a silly example, but one example where I experienced this recently was this past fall when we were doing an alpha course, and because of COVID, we had to do it online. And most of the time, Alan Hawkins, our wonderful rector, ran, ran the show on Zoom, but there are some weeks where I had to initiate the Zoom call. And so I got to log in with Alan Hawkins' Zoom account. I had his email, and I had his password, and I got to start that Zoom call I had Alan Hawkins' family as my profile picture. I had his name in my box. And all of a sudden, I had all these Zoom pro account privileges that I'd never seen before. I could do polls. I could whisk people away into breakout rooms. I could share my screen. I could mute people if I really didn't like them. I was feeling the power. It wasn't for my account. My Zoom account cannot do that. It's because I was logged in as Alan Hawkins. Peter says that this man's healing did not come from him. It came from the power and the authority that Jesus's name carries. All he did, so to speak, was log in with the right password. I think seeing this is really important for for a lot of reasons. Um, One reason, though, is because we live in a culture where we're often caught in a war between two sides that have very different opinions about the foundation of reality and truth. Now, on the one side, there's kind of the growing view that truth is relative. I have my truth, you have your truth, and don't you dare try to push your truth on me. But what happens when we live in a world with 8 billion different definitions of what is true? That's chaos. But on the other hand, it also seems like there's a growing wave of ideological absolutism or fundamentalism where people think that their own understanding of reality or their understanding of truth is unassailable. It can't be questioned. Almost divine, right? And when people think that, then any other beliefs that might challenge what you think, they've got to be eliminated by force if necessary. Now, these are two radical, radically different views of reality, right? But they actually share one feature. They assume that we are the main character who decide what is true and what is real. But Christianity is neither of these. It's neither relativism nor absolutism. Instead, in the Christian faith, truth has a name. It is personal. For a Christian, there is a more important question than just what do I believe? And it's the question, in whom do I believe? You know, there's this powerful scene towards the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus is on trial and he's in a room alone with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who's um, running the trial. And Jesus makes this bold claim to him that everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he says. And Pilate scoffs and says, what is truth? As he turns away from Jesus and leaves the room. And it's one of the most ironic scenes, I think, in the entire Bible. This man is pondering abstract questions about truth, 
while he is ignorant of the one who is truth standing right in front of him. See, the Christian faith is not about what you think. And it's not about what you do. It's not fundamentally a system of theology or a system of ethics. It is a call to relationship with Christ, to communion with God. As one writer puts it, it's about being in love, not just being right. And at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, there's not going to be a theology exam. There's going to be Jesus greeting us as either a friend or a stranger. When I was in college, I became really interested. I was a religion and philosophy double major, and I was really interested in learning more about what I believe and, and why I believe it. And you know, pretty soon, I was so convinced by my own logic that I figured everybody else ought to be convinced by it too. Now, I had an argument and a proof for everything, and I thought that my theological system was unassailable, perfect, would never be changed. And, you know, anyone who didn't think like I did, well, either they were dumb or they were just being irrational. And if I could just talk at them long enough, I could make them see that. I was kind of like the classic, arrogant undergrad student who thinks that they see things more clearly than anyone who's come before them, right? But heading into my senior year, my intellectual tower of Babel came crashing down around me. By God's grace and by the challenging questions of a friend from a different religion, I started to realize that I couldn't actually draw a straight line from my brain into heaven. I realized that the Christian faith wasn't this just simple, obviously logical thing that, of course, if you've got a brain, you'd believe it. It was a lot more complex than that. There were good reasons to doubt the Christian faith. And pretty soon, with those certainty, that absolutism that I'd bought into, with that starting to crumble, I didn't know what I believed in. And so I was in multiple positions of Christian leadership in my church and in my campus ministry. And frankly, I was an agnostic at best for several months. But somewhere in that really hard season, I stumbled across a quote by C.S. Lewis, as many others have, that hit me in a way that's hard to explain. In The Weight of Glory, Lewis writes, he says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. And something about that quote helped me to realize that my own brain, my own intellectual striving and thought processes were a lot less important than I thought they were. It wasn't the place where I would find truth. And like Pilate, as long as I left Jesus in the other room, trying to figure out what is truth all on my own, I realized that I would never find an answer. And I realized that the story of Christianity is not a story about heroic faith or heroic goodness or heroic reasoning on our part. It's the story of a God who makes himself known to a world that is lost in the dark. 
who enters our confusion and our alienation as a person with a name whom we could know. And in that season, Jesus met me, and healed me, and restored me. And he returned my faith to the only foundation big enough to support it, himself. See, Jesus didn't pass the baton to Peter or to us and then let us get on with it. Jesus is not a cosmic cheerleader cheering us on from the sidelines after having exited the stage. No, Jesus was and is still the only one who heals and restores and redeems and forgives and has the power to change this world. And our calling as Christians is to participate in Christ's work and mission and ministry, to join him in what he is doing in the world. We don't invite Jesus into our church or into our lives. We don't have a mission as a church that is inspired by Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And the church is his body. And so if the story that we're a part of is fundamentally a story about God, not about us, how does that change our past and our future and our present? Let's start with the past. In Peter's sermon to the crowd, he tells the story of their past with unflinching honesty. It's brutal. No filter, no face tune. Look at verse 13. Peter says to them, you handed Jesus over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. That has to be the biggest burn in the entire Bible. And it doesn't get any worse than that. It's, that's weighty. But what Peter is trying to do is to help them see the consequences of what has happened when they have tried to live as the main character of their own story, when they have tried to be the hero, when they have exalted their understanding of God over, the, over who God actually is when they've worshiped their understanding instead of God himself. And the result was that they denied the holy and righteous one and preferred a murderer to the author of life. That isn't all Peter says about their past. He goes on in verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is actually how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Down to verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. See, the people's unfaithfulness, as great as it was, was not the headline of their story because they never were the main character. Even their unfaithfulness, Peter says, is now something that God has used to bring about the redemption and the salvation that God had always planned to accomplish. Even their worst act of all, killing the one who came to save them, was reversed by God raising him from the dead. 
See, Peter actually knew a thing or two about our past being able to be redeemed and transformed. Twice he calls out this crowd for having denied Jesus. Well, it was only a few months before this where Peter had denied Jesus three times in one night in Jesus' hour of greatest need. And yet Jesus came to Peter. He forgave him. He loved him. And he still trusted him with the leadership of his church. Peter knew what it was to have his past transformed. See, God's power to redeem is greater than our power to destroy. And when we learn to see our story as part of the bigger story of what God is doing in the world, our past isn't erased. It's transfigured. Because God is able to use even the worst things we've done and to weave them into the incredible future that he's created. And I think that this, too, is a really important point for our cultural moment in time. Um, as we grapple in this season as a church and as a nation with really broken parts of our past. Again, I see two common responses to a lot of these hard things being brought into the light. On the one hand, there's cancel culture. You know, if someone or some institution has done evil in the past, the answer is get rid of them, throw them out, throw out the whole institution, throw out the whole person irredeemable, done. But on the other hand, there's a defensiveness of the past that refuses to see or to admit to the depth of brokenness and harm that's been done, right? And these two sides keep just going at it again and again. But when we understand that we're part of the story that God is writing, we can both name the worst things about our past, both individually and corporately, and believe that the worst things that we have ever done will not be the defining actions about history or our lives. Because God is the main character, and his power to redeem is greater than our power to destroy. If God can redeem the murder of the author of life, he can redeem whatever you've done too. So the story that we're invited into doesn't erase our past. It transfigures it. But what does it tell us about our future? When you picture the end of the story that Christianity tells, what images come to your mind? You know, unfortunately, I think that our cultural portrayals of the end of the story have really warped our understanding about the future that Scripture teaches us to hope for. You know, many people think that the future that we have to hope for is you know, that we're all going to become a bunch of fat babies with wings, zooming around clouds with, with harps. Or, you know, maybe that's silly. Failing that, though, we won't be fat baby angels, but at least we'll leave this messed up world behind and we'll get to go somewhere else and live forever elsewhere in heaven, right? That's the end of the story that we have to hope for. Getting rid of all this, going somewhere else. But that isn't actually the story that the Bible tells. And it isn't the story that Peter tells. The future that he describes is quite different. And now that Jesus has returned to heaven, he says, look at verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for us all to join him in heaven? No. Until the time comes for God to restore everything 
as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Peter says that a heaven separate from earth is even only a temporary dwelling for Jesus. Even for Jesus, that's not the end of the story. As N.T. Wright points out, I think it's helpful for us to maybe think about heaven or to understand heaven as the place where God's purposes for the future are being stored up. It's like a great storehouse. So our future is in heaven for now, but it won't stay there. Because the future that God promised through the Old Testament prophets is not that ultimately we will go somewhere else. It is that Christ will return to bring heaven here, to reunite heaven and earth, to restore all things. It's the hope that God won't get rid of all this and make all new things, but the hope that God will make all things new. We will be resurrected like Jesus was to live in a restored creation, free from death and decay. God will destroy death once and for all, destroy sickness, destroy dementia and depression, racism, loneliness, and despair. God will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes and restore this world in us to be the people that we were made to be. Just as our past is not erased, but transfigured, so our future is not one of evacuation, but resurrection. What about the present? What about us right here, right now, today? Despite how huge and broad the story is that Peter tells his crowd, he gives them just one utterly simple point of application. Verse 19, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent and turn to God. That's the response that Peter urged from his audience 2,000 years ago. Because repentance is the doorway through which we enter into God's story. It's the doorway. And repentance means leaving behind a life and a story that's all about us, where we're the main character and we're the hero or we're the irredeemable villain. Either way, it puts us at the center. And it means entering into the truer and better story with a better hero than we could ever be. It means naming the reality that living like we are the center of the world, like our power and understanding is all we need. It means naming that living like that has not brought us the life that we long for. And we can miss out on the opportunity of repentance in a couple of different ways. You know, one way is to think that, well, you know, we can have redemption and restoration without repentance. Now, repentance is outdated and cruel. Why would, we, why would we get negative about things like that? You know, we can get the benefits of God's love without cost, without commitment. That's one way to miss the opportunity of repentance. And the other way is to think that we are so far gone so messed up, it's so broken that God would never want us, that forgiveness and healing are impossible for a person like me. But Peter's words are utterly clear. Repent and turn to God. Leave your old story behind and become part of the better story that God is writing 
Place your trust not in your own power and holiness and understanding, but in the name of the risen Jesus who is making all things new. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're in a place of exploring or asking questions, you're trying to figure out what you believe, let me urge you. The question, what is true, can never be answered simply by rummaging around in our brains without committing to anything. I speak from experience. The only way to know if Jesus really is who he claims to be, if he really is the truth and the way and the life, is to do what Pilate didn't do, to turn back to him, to engage with him, follow after him in community, walk with him with us in community, and see if you find what you're looking for. But the call to repent isn't just for folks who are not Christians. The call to repent is for longtime Christians too. Even if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we live in a world that calls us and invites us into different stories on a daily basis. Every day we can fall into trying to be the hero, into worshiping our own ideas, into relativism, into tribalism, into cynicism, into hopelessness, into thinking that we have no future. The call to repent is for us too. Consider where you may have walked out of the story of God's redemption into something else. And turn around. Return to God. What happens when we do? Peter says that two things will happen. First, our sins will be wiped out. Our past not, may not be erased, but the sin that defined and controlled it will be. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we choose to turn to God, he always welcomes us with open arms. But we aren't only forgiven. Peter also says that times of refreshment will come from the Lord. What does that mean? He's saying that when we embrace God's story and Jesus as the main character, that some of that future restoration that is being stored up for us in heaven will be poured out upon us and that we can receive now in the present. Paul calls this a foretaste of the glory to come. Jesus talked regularly about the kingdom of God coming near. And this is what the man who was healed experienced, a foretaste of the resurrection and restoration to come. Peter says that when we turn to God, we're not only forgiven of the guilt of our sin, but we experience healing from the effects of sin. And that may or may not involve physical healing. It can also be emotional, spiritual, relational healing. It may or may not happen in one epic, miraculous moment like it did for this man. It may be a lifelong process. But all of us who live into God's story can hope and look and pray for new creation to burst into our life. And so friends, today, I pray that you would not settle for a lesser story. Lay down the burden of trying to be your own hero and turn to Christ, the one who all of our stories point to, the one who can redeem our past, resurrect our future, and refresh our present. Because of his victory over death, our sins and our struggles no longer define who we are. Turn to Christ who died 
and is risen and will come again to restore all things, including me and you. Amen.